you want to do the intro for this one? Yeah. Welcome to Obstinate Headstrong Girls. I'm Jessica. And I'm Julie. <laughs> I'm Amy. And that's Julie. Yeah, we're back with Julie, Sister Julie, talking about episodes three and four of Bridgerton on Netflix, yes. the TV show. Yes. All mm -hmm. important things to clarify. Yeah, so if you want to hear what we thought about episodes one and two, you can listen to the uh, other wow. episode that's probably been, well, it definitely has Get to have been posted by now. now so. Get down. <laughs> what's your dog what's your dog doing sorry i tried to mute my mic before i told her to get down and i realized i didn't on that last one but there's possible danger outside the window or maybe just a regular person doing a regular thing oh it's okay roscoe throws his body against the door sometimes whenever i'm recording and he's not with me so <laughs> my Wait. dogs ignore me completely when we do this <laughs> they do not care at all i i close the blinds so that she would not be able to see out to avoid exactly this situation so you can see how that turned out sorry guys oh she's sorry yeah, yeah i'm sorry do we have to like start over that was my bad no no okay we just we just leave all this shit in it's fine <laughs> um, sometimes it depends I... if i listen to it and i'm like oh god <laughs> so I... episode three or what were you to say? I was just going to say, can I shout out a book I read this week that wasn't a podcast book, but that I liked? Yeah. It's by Ava Lay, and it's called Would I Lie to the Duke? And it's a Regency romance, and it's um, it's fun, and I liked it, and I read it very quickly. It's got, oh. it's like relatively, like pretty darn steamy. Um, it's got a submissive duke. And I feel like anytime there's like an additional fetish involved with the sex stuff, it seems like extra steamy. Um, but it was good. I liked it. Didn't she just have a um, story that was translated to a Christmas uh, movie on like Hallmark? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, I thought so. Yes, she did. A Timeless Christmas. Oh, well, now I'm going to go watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Regency, I think. Don't quote me on that. I'll but yeah, I remember seeing that. So there's another romance conversion that if if you liked Bridgerton, go check that out. Yeah. Although I'm making that recommendation and I have not watched it, so Wait. Have I? <laughs> you watched so many Christmas movies. Oh my god, yeah, I watched a lot. So oh no, I did watch it. It's amazing. You have to watch it. So <laughs> my hands are flailing over here. It's about um, they it, like a guy in, I don't know, the 1800s finds a clock and he tries to fix it and it jolts him through time into 2019 in a place where there's not, or actually I think it's 2020, but in a place where there's not coronavirus or masks and um, they fall in love because she runs the museum that his, of his old house. All oh, that sounds amazing. Will you say the name one more time? Yeah, it's a timeless Christmas. A timeless Christmas. Okay. It's on Hallmark. Yeah. Okay. So it's very chaste. I'm ass I'm assuming the book is not as chaste based on what you said about the other one you read by her. Mm -hmm. But she does that. Is she's the same author and she writes under a couple of different pen names for different like genres and things. So 
there's a potential that it could be the same person with a different vibe. A gnome de plume. A gnome de plume. Was that a good accent? Did I nail it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a second I was like, oh my god, who's this French person? Where'd Amy go? <laughs> so oh, remember in the last episode when you were like, yeah, I guess if Julie comes on, I'm going to have to talk in a different voice the whole time. I'm hoping that you guys alter my voice so I sound like I'm on one of those crime scene shows and I have to be disguised to protect my identity. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you have to do that while you're recording. I don't think you can just add it later. Oh, oh well. I, I mean, isn't that how autotune works? Like, you do it later? I mean, you're the technician, so if you think you can. I mean, I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just apologize to listeners if you can't tell mine and Amy's voice apart. Which, like, just sitting here, I can tell us apart, I think. Just yeah, but I can always tell you? us apart. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you guys apart because you're my friends. Yeah. I think this is, like, the same thing with twins. Like, I have friends that are twins, and I'm like, I see a very clear difference. Why can't you guys tell them apart? And mm. other people who just meet them are like, I don't know which one it was. I'm like, huh? But it's just something, yeah, the more you're familiar with it. There were twins at my work that they might, they're probably still there. But I had class with one of them, like an HR class, and then like ran into the other one, not knowing that they were twins and just started chatting up. And it was like a whole who's on first, what's on second situation for a minute. (laughs) There were twins at my old office, the one that your husband works at, Amy, and they'd go on walks together. And it like there's this one creepy ass long hallway and they'd come towards you and it was kind of like the shining. (laughs) It was not okay. (laughs) Whenever I have identical twins in my classes, I always seat one of them on the right side of the room and then one of them on the left side of the room and then I designate them right and left and that's how that's like my first step to telling them apart before I actually know them as people that's a good idea teacher tricks man you guys know all this stuff (laughs) one of the things I find most impressive about teachers of which there are many things is that they can remember the names of like 25 students at once but that's just one class sometimes. Yeah. I just, I would be like, we're going to call you number two. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It's it's a process to get there. I mean, there's a certain amount of pretending you know people's names that happens during the second quarter. <laughs> um, where it's like, I've known you much too long to admit that I don't remember your name. But you are like a, a you know, white, blonde, 16-year-old girl. And so are 400 other people in this building. And I just, I'm not sure which one you are. (laughs) Which the masks have really added an interesting twist to that situation. So now I've actually, I cannot recognize them without the mask on. So when we switched to virtual and I was seeing their faces on our like Zoom call situations, I was like, oh, you don't look like I thought you'd look. Because your brain fills in what the bottom half of their face will be, and it's not always right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, we've diverged. So episode three opens up in the Bridgerton drawing room. Yeah. And they're talking about Daphne's prospects. They, they've successfully gotten rid of Nigel. Ba- and interesting story. 
how they did that. So basically, it's that he impregnated a maid and then sent her off to the country and refused to help her in any way with any sort of money. And the vibe is that it was not uncommon to accidentally impregnate a maid, but that it's unforgivable that he wouldn't financially stabilize her, basically. And that he was such a wealthy man and he wouldn't provide in any way for this for this child. And so the story goes around enough that it gets to Lady Whistledown. Lady Whistledown prints it and then he basically runs away to the country to get away from the scandal. Which I did think it was funny that Lady Whistledown said she would not be surprised if he ran away to the country. And then that's immediately what he did. Mm -hmm. She knows her stuff. Yeah. I like how it came out. Um, and everyone's reading the Lady Whistledown while they're sitting in uh, the the club, the men's club. And he hasn't read it yet. And then yeah, and everyone horror. just turns. Yeah, and the horror on his face as he realizes like he's been found out. I also thought it was an interesting contrast to Marina's situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so. true. Mm-hmm. No, you do not contrast, but just like parallel. Mm-hmm. You know, not that she's a maid. No, yeah, but it's it's just the the difference in how they would be treated having been found out to have a child outside of marriage. Because he's going to run away to the country and still be a wealthy baron and be set for life. And eventually he'll come back and like someone somewhere will probably agree to marry him because he's wealthy enough and a baron. And... Like, he might not have exactly the life that he wanted because of this scandal, but it will not leave him impoverished. It will not take food away from his family. Like, he's going to be fine. And the situation she is in is much, much more perilous to her. Yeah. Because, like, if her parents decided, like, this shame is too much, we're putting you out in the street, she would just have no way of making her own money. She would have a child or be actively pregnant without any support system and potentially end up at one of those terrible, like, nun houses yeah, for like single mothers. situation. Yeah. Which I did, I think it was in this episode, correct me if I'm wrong, that Lady Featherington takes Marina to kind of like the other side of town where, yeah. um, you know, the people are are living in poverty. And it basically uses it as a warning to her of if you don't do what I say and marry someone immediately, this is what's going to happen to you. And I had a lot of respect for Marina's response to that, which was, I look around and I see hardworking people that are living their lives like you see happiness here and it's not as grand and beautiful as what you're used to but that doesn't mean that it's wrong which lady featherington i mean she does have a point she points out like the little kids that are begging in the streets and and but i just thought that marina's response to that coming from a high class family in a high class society like this is what she's known all her life to not have that instant revulsion and to say like no these are normal people like these are hard-working people doing hard work and I don't understand why that's a bad thing it wasn't the response I expected and I really appreciated that I did really like their their capes with the hoods though yep it was a good look <laughs> I was like oh I want a cape with a hood yeah so this is when the queen brings out Prince Fed- Frederick Okay, wait. So they meet at a ball and Simon and um, Daphne are like predicting the conversations and like what will mm-hmm. be said. And she snort laughs. 
I feel like that's such a couple thing to do. Like that's such a two people that are falling in love situation where they kind of stand off in a corner and like accurately judge people in the room and make little stories about what they're saying. And I don't know. There's something about that that's very intimate, even though there's nothing actually intimate going on, you know, like physically Mm -hmm. or anything like that between them. Um, But yeah, the snort was beautiful. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that scene comes after one of the 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 opening scene of the episode they're talking about daphne's marriage prospects now and lady bridgerton says just marry the one who feels like your best friend and daphne's like oh yeah that's the simplest thing in the world i'll just find my best friend and marry them and then the very next scene we get with her and simon they're very much acting like very good close friends mm-hmm. and so i was like ah you're telling us a thing <laughs> you're, you're foreshadowing some stuff yeah but no i thought the snort was great how do we feel about the prince's accent confused because i was like is this is this what people from prussia sound like isn't it just Germany? I don't know. It's So it was supposed to be just German, I thought. It wasn't a very strong accent, but he did say that he spent a lot of his childhood in London. So that brought yeah. it more into perspective of like, it's a strong, like it's a London accent with a hint of German in there. Yeah, he was a throwaway character to me, so I didn't pay attention much to his accent. They did not make him very compelling. I- Agree. I kind of want just... I want justice for Prince Frederick. Agreed. Like, he like, is maybe the nicest male character in the series. He's just like a genuinely, a genuinely kind, kind person. person. He doesn't have any agenda. He just wants to like find a woman that they'll be able to make each other happy. And, you know, with the situation with Daphne, it's like, if this doesn't work out, then that's okay. But if it does, you know, it's like very authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, I though. That... I want justice for him. Like, I... Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, in the extended universe, he does not have his own book. Like, he's not in Daphne's book, but he is in another person's book in very much the same role. Oh. Um, oh poor guy. I know. And now I kind of want him to have his own, his own little book. But yeah, Cressida, also not in Daphne's book, but a big part of Penelope's book. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to read any of the other books. That's fair. I feel like once it starts becoming the TV show, it's like, if you prefer one to the other, there's not as much of a motivation to feel how the story continues in another way. And a lot of the books really do hit the same beats. So, like, I read through all of them, and I enjoyed reading through all of them, but it's also true that all of them are pretty similar. Okay, so back in this episode, we have Prince Frederick. Frederick. Daphne, like, the queen is trying to get them together. Which I love how busybody the queen is. Like, I love how the queen is like, I'm gonna get all up in this business and make things how I want to make things. They're like, she didn't have better things to do than, like, socially match up people to marry. Yeah. Which I had so many questions that are still unanswered about the queen's relationship with her husband. Is that expanded on in the books a bit more? The the queen is not in the books. Okay. Well, then I guess we'll never know. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree that like all through the series, 
she's like people come in and are like an announcement she's like the king's dead yeah <laughs> like but then no. she's like clearly sad right when it, like there's mm-hmm. that obvious separation between the two of them so i am i'm curious I, maybe they'll go into it in the next season of the tv show or something it is based on the real life queen charlotte who had a tenuous relationship mm-hmm. with her husband because he was a mad king was was he george the third sure I'm pretty sure he was. So, like, Hamilton, George III. Isn't that why it's called the Regency time period? Because there was a question about the regent? Oh. I don't know. I'm cool with going with that, yeah, though. Yeah, I'll believe it forever now that right. you've said it. I'm going to teach yeah. it to my I'm gonna students. I'm going to spread it around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good with facts, guys. So, like, take that. Take that and run with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, one thing that comes from the queen and lady bridgerton's tea in the prior episode they also talk about this idea of friendship being the proper base for marriage and i thought that it was it was interesting one that the the queen's kind of take on it and the reason she's called in later bridgerton is like i deemed your daughter to be a success before she even stepped out into the world you better prove me right. Like she better be the success I said she was going to be because I'm never wrong. And she talks about how she basically blessed Mozart with her favor. And then he became Mozart. And she's like, maybe he would have been talented without me, but with me, he was everything. And so like this idea that because she has been singled out by the queen, as the jewel of the season means that her match needs to live up to that hype yeah which the duke would live up to that hype right which it seems like she would be okay with her and the duke at this point because the prince hasn't entered the sphere and so the prince is now here for a visit he's a favorite of the queen and she's like I've figured it out, which I was actually watching that. I was like, I wouldn't hate us like an alternate version of this story where the Duke doesn't come up to snuff. And then she ends up with the Prince and it's like a slow burn friends to lovers. Yeah. I wouldn't hate that at all. Like, I think that's part of justice for Prince Frederick. Like he's not a bad character. It's not like Nigel where you're like, Oh, duh, the Prince, the Duke is so much better. He's, he's -hmm. like a puppy dog in human form. Like, you just want to like squeeze him and like love on him. Right. And it goes back into this romance novel, you know, passionate thing where like there is nothing wrong with the prince. He seems like he would probably be an excellent husband and an excellent match for Daphne, but she already has this passion building with the Duke that's not there with the prince. And so like mm-hmm. that is the difference, even though probably the prince would be like an easier match life partner for her because he does not I mean we don't know that much about him so who knows but he does not appear to have quite the emotional baggage Mm -hmm. which I think one of the things romance novels kind of sell to us is this idea that everyone has the one perfect person in the world for them Mm -hmm. and that you're like destined to be with one specific person when I think it's definitely truer to life that different people can be right for you at different phases of your life and different times of your life. And so like, do I think Daphne could have had a happy ending with either character? Yes. It just would depend on like how you framed it. And so Lady Danbury also recognizes this and she's like, that girl has a chance with a prince. 
if you aren't going to get your shit together and propose to her, I hope I raised you better than to ruin her chances with a prince by distracting her when a prince wants to marry her. And Simon's like, oh shit. Yeah. Import- I just got schooled. Important to note, before that is a scene where he just licks a spoon, though. <laughs> Very true. Yes. There, the gif of all gifts for the ages... The gift scene around the world is just him licking a spoon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then he also... licked a spoon and everyone that watched it was like, yeah, okay, yes. Yep, that's how we eat. I saw this TikTok that's like, why is everyone so horny right now? And then it just plays that gif. And I was like, yep. Um... Also, this is when they promenade and Simon... And she's like, what... They're... She's trying to figure out what marriage is about. And she's like, what's the, there's the physical and the mental, like, is that all that there is? And he's like, and then it's like, you have to touch yourself. <laughs> and then she goes and masturbates for the first time ever. Yeah, I think I love that scene and how it's set up. And one of the, some something someone said on Twitter, or Jess, did you say it? Was that, like, normally it comes off creepy when one person is, like, instructing another person on something sexual like mm-hmm. that. In, in like a visual medium versus like a book but that this scene he doesn't seem like he's leering yeah he's yeah. not he, it didn't come across as him being like and I want to hear about it later I mean he does <laughs> ask about it later but like <laughs> it's not like oh because I'm gonna think about you doing this it's just like oh I'm your friend and I want you to know Right. And I mean, he's clearly surprised that this concept does not seem to have crossed her mind before. Like she did not Mm -hmm. realize this was a thing people did. And he can't understand why she didn't realize that. So but I agree that he wasn't condescending in the way that he was framing it. Yeah. And and he's like, uh, I think he kind of thought, like, why haven't her brothers ta- told her about this? But, I mean. Which, can you imagine a brother telling you about that? Because I cannot. Yeah. And I have a yeah, brother. Be... I would hit him in the face yeah. if he tried to talk to yeah. me like no, that. thank you. Um, it, he did seem genuinely confused. Like, he thought he would be able to say what you do at night. And she would just, like, be like, oh, yeah, that thing I do at night. And she's like. And he's like, oh, shit. Okay. Um, Half step back. What else do you do at night? (laughs) She's like, I sleep. I dream. I do other stuff. Is this the episode that opens with her dream about him? Yes. And like the most chaste sex dream of all time. Because she doesn't know what sex is. She doesn't know what it's supposed (laughs) to be. Someone tell these ladies. I can't. Which... Part of it is maybe that they haven't spent enough time in the country because in a lot of these books, it's like, well, no one ever told me what sex is, but I grew up in the country and I saw two cows going at it once. (laughs) And so I feel like maybe the Bridgerton spend too much time in the city and therefore they have not been exposed to uh, farm animal intercourse. (laughs) (laughs) So one other thing. The uh-huh. intro with the tree and like the trees growing and then like there's like things that come out of it like the really bad CGI, which mm-hmm. just felt like a Bridgerton knockoff of the Westworld. I'm what? Oh my gosh, the knockoff of the Game of Thrones intro where they have like the scene growing mm-hmm. and stuff. 
I I have like I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or the other. It just kind of made me laugh, like the tree, like with the stuff coming out of it, and with um, Game of Thrones, which I keep trying to call Westworld. It told you like where they were going in that episode and who was going to be in it. And like, oh, are we going to see um, the Targaryens this episode? But this one, it's just like, oh, there's a shitty CGI tree growing right now. Yeah. One thing, and I want to shout this out for other readers, is the bumblebee. Did you guys notice that in various episodes and at various points, they focus on, in on a bumblebee? Anthony's yeah. shirt. Like it's embroidered on the collar of his shirt. That is like a call out to the readers. Because yeah. that is like a huge part of Antony's story. Because that's how his dad dies. It's like the dies. existence of a bumblebee. That's how the dad yes. dies, though. What? Mm-hmm. What? What? How did you know that already? Because I read an article that was like, it's weird that it's in the show. Does a bumblebee, oh, okay. a bumblebee kills the dad? Is he allergic? allergic? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very sad. Mm-hmm. But it's like a significant part of Antony's story. The existence of a bumblebee and how he reacts to said bumblebee. Okay. So I think it's funny that they that they put it in various episodes and kind of made it like a kind of like foreshadowing symbol. Does he meet like a killer giant bumblebee that he must battle? Yeah. Okay. It's that he falls in love with a bumblebee and then he's like, how will this ever work? You've killed my father. <laughs> what else about talk. episode three? major swoon moment in this episode which was when they were looking at the art at the party so after the conversation where she accidentally snorted in front of the prince and they're both looking at the picture and it cuts to their hands and his hand does like a little twitch towards hers and then they go and hold hands that little like that initial moment where you see their hands hanging like side by side and they're standing, you know, apart from each other. And like the, you see like this tiny little movement of his hand towards hers. And I was like, yes, do it. Hold hands. You're in love. Do it. (laughs) And it was just, and then they do hold hands. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, talk to each other about it. Like if you would just (laughs) talk to each other about it for five seconds, all of this could be so easy. Because how do you not know that you love each other? You're holding hands while looking at a painting. Because Regency. That's why they don't know they love each other. If they, like the whole show, I was like, if you would just talk to each other for five seconds, this would be done. Like, this would be so easy. Just talk to each other about it. (laughs) And they would never talk to each other about it at any point. Oh, yeah, because anytime you ever liked a boy at any point in your life, you just had one very frank conversation and then resolved it one way or another. I'm just saying. All right. (laughs) There were a couple of points where it seemed like the natural next step to approach the other person and say, there seems to be a serious miscommunication between us. Maybe we could discuss it for five seconds and maybe we could clear it up. And that never happened. Instead, they did stuff like running away and dueling and all kinds of shenanigans so one thing that i thought to me this show very much felt like reading romance like it hit a lot of the same stride as when you're reading a good romance book and it gives you that like tingly feeling in your heart where you're like "Mm, they're in love and i'm a little in love with the fact that they're in love and i think one of the things that romance does so well is remind you of things that used to be exciting like holding hands with someone for the first time and like those things that like once you're maybe more established in a relationship or whatever like 
it loses some of its spark and different things become exciting but that thing no longer is like if i come up and just grab my husband's hand he's gonna be like my hands real sweaty can you please let go (laughs) like that's just how that is and so like i feel like scenes like this remind you of like that being able to feel that bit of like electricity between your hand and another person's hand and wanting them to make that move towards you and wanting to have that sensation of like your hands touching each other and how like formative that is at the beginning of a relationship. And to me, the show really captures romance in those moments. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I had that same realization, but with a different moment, which it was in, I think the second episode where they were dancing, Simon and Daphne were dancing and you see his hand go like up the back of her dress um, to like, I guess the exposed, like the yeah, the exposed part of her back. So he wasn't touching her dress anymore. He was touching her skin at the top, um, like right below her neck. And it was one of those moments where it's like, it's such a small thing. Right. I mean, it's something that someone passing by would probably not even notice, but it's also kind of that first like skin on skin contact in an intimate way where it's, you know, like kind of introducing. That's like a psychology thing that if you're into someone, you should try and uh, like casually touch them within the first like hour of meeting them or something like that to introduce yourself as like a possible sexual partner. That's a psychology thing. It is. I swear to God. (laughs) Um, And it it made me think of that where it's like, Oh, that it's like the touch barrier has been broken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that one is even more scandalous because they're dancing and like everyone could see them and like, he's not supposed to touch her there. Yeah. So but yeah, so that that's when they're looking at the art and she's like, well, this art makes me think of this thing. And he's like, oh, I love her. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. don't have the words to say it yet because my heart needs to grow three sizes. <laughs> <laughs> Which good juxtaposition to how you could go. I feel like the skill set of a rake able to do all that stuff and then able to fully destroy every bit of in you. like five seconds, quick five quick seconds. conversation, a quick stiff stiff back, good posture, Miss Bridgerton, and then just a straight slamming. Oh my god, yeah, brutal, yeah. And he's like, I can't see you anymore. Oh my god, mm-hmm. she's like, what the hell? I just masturbated about you. <laughs> She's like, I was going to tell you something really exciting, but fine, I'll keep it to myself. Like, oh my god, I can't believe I did that to you. Mm -hmm. And he does say something that's true, which is, our goal was to get you proper suitors, and that has happened. So now I'm going to leave London. My goal was to not be hounded by mothers. I'm going to leave London. My goal is accomplished. Your goal is accomplished. Go marry a prince. And, like, all of that is somewhat true, but... He's obviously ignoring everything that's built between them in the meantime. And I think he's being deliberately cruel to try to get her to dislike him so that she'll go marry someone else. Well, yeah, because he knows that he can never marry her because of a rule that Mm -hmm. he established for himself. But still. Yeah, I found that. I think you're exactly right, Amy. But I found that to be so incredibly frustrating because the cruelty was unnecessary 
I mean, you know, he could have said, we have served our purpose and now we're going to go our separate ways without that. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like they have served their purpose. And even if something was building between them, which we all knew it was, but I mean, him saying it's time for us to go our separate ways, the ruse is done, we've accomplished our purpose, that would have been enough, I think. I mean, that would have been enough for her to know, like, now it's time to go and marry the prince and live a life with him instead. And she would have done that. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that he felt the need to be so incredibly cruel to her about it was heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And I will say, I my thought on why he did that was that I don't think he could have resisted if she had truly tried to stop him. And so his goal was to, like, shut it down immediately. Like, if he had very nicely said, we don't need to do this anymore, have fun, I'm going to head out, and she would have said, I don't want you to go, that he would have had a hard time resisting that or not saying how he truly felt and so he was in a selfish way keeping himself from having to deal with his feelings by shutting it down so hard it would leave her without a desire to stop him Mm. yeah because he thinks he knows what's best for her Mm -hmm. and himself but he's a dummy and he doesn't which bit of a vibe difference from their dynamic in the book to the dynamic in the show because in the in the book I think of her as more manipulative, whereas he is more caught up in some of her manipulations, whereas in the show it felt a little bit reversed in some of these scenes. Mm -hmm. I did like the name of this episode. It's called Art of the Swoon. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's a good title. Yeah. So this is where we get the fake letter to Marina. Yeah. Which, good lord, Lady Featherington. It's a lot. So... Marina's pregnant. Lady Featherington is trying to figure out how to deal with her and having a hard time getting her to agree that the only choice is for her to marry literally anyone that will have her so that there is a prayer that the baby will come in a time frame that people will believe it's the husband's baby. And so Lady Featherington has started basically soliciting these older unmarried men who want heirs but are probably or potentially too old to have children of their own and the idea is like they're going to look the other way they want a child you have a child they're going to pretend like this timing makes sense and it will protect you and Maureen is like I'm not having this shit And so she says, I'm waiting for a letter back from my true love. He's on the front. It's taking him a while to get back to me, but he'll do it. And so Lady Featherington's like, well, I'm going to deal with this myself and finds letters from him and copies his handwriting and basically says, this never happened. The child can't be mine because we, we were never in love. Good luck with your predicament. I'll see you later. And, like, Marina, like, screaming in pain after she read that, like, I felt it all the way deep down in my wrinkly little soul. Yeah. I hated that for her and her character, but I love a good forged letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, like, soap opera-y moment. Yeah. So, and oh, go ahead. Penelope has kind of become her confidant. Mm-hmm. So, like, Penelope was watching out for this letter. Um, 
And I think between this episode and the next, Marina set her sight sets her sights on Colin as like the only person of her own age that she kind of likes that seems to like her. And she thinks I can convince him to marry me as quickly as I need to be married and it will solve my problem. I'll, I'll at least be married to like a decent human being. It won't be like some guy who told me upon first meeting that his teeth are dead soldiers' teeth. That was so upsetting. That was, I hated that so much. It was like, I had to pay for my teeth. They ripped it out of the mouths of dead soldiers and fitted it into these dentures. Don't they look good? (sighs) That obviously poses an issue for Penelope, who just via longing glances, anyone who looks at the show is like, oh, she's in love with him. This episode is where a lot of Anthony's flip-flopping with Sienna occurs, too. Um, oh, yeah. and she's singing at the ball or no, mm-hmm. the, the, the party. No, that's the next yeah, episode the next... that she sings. Yeah. At the party. But a lot of his flip-flopping with her occurs in this episode. I did not care about their storyline. I don't, but that, I feel like, I mean, I thought she was more compelling as a character than he Absolutely. was for sure. I feel like yeah. her, that relationship, that storyline only solidified how unlikable he was to me. Where, and there were parts where I was like, are they trying to make him sympathetic? Because he's still a giant douche here. I don't think they are. I think you're supposed to dislike him as much as we dislike yeah. him. Mm-hmm. But I had a lot I of really respect do. for the opera singer, Sienna. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I thought that her story arc throughout the whole thing was very realistic and compelling. Yeah. Which it's hard to make both of those things happen, especially in a romance novel. Like, realism is not always your friend when it comes to these things. But I thought that her story was both in a very interesting way. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I was just going to say that this is one of the ways that I like the way the show has updated the story. Because she's basically a barely mentioned side character in his book where it's like she's been his mistress for a while and now he's going to move on and find true love and she doesn't really mind because she's going to move on and find her next benefactor and everyone always knew what this was Mm -hmm. and so to take that and turn it into a story that has much more depth and you know within the and that's not to say that the interpretation of it in the book is bad right the author had so many pages and words in order to get across a full story and that was the way it was accomplished but i i like that the show is giving us characters like that and then being like well what if you could see what their story was maybe this is what it would look like and so as a person who has read the books enough that i feel like i know the story very well i like that i'm still surprised by what's happening to these characters yeah and it feels authentic to her writing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. The the best part about this episode for me, and maybe like the first four, episodes, I don't know. I don't want to make that sweeping statement, but is when um, at the modiste, um, Daphne overhears Lady Calperton like saying, you know, to get Daphne to back off the prince, she has the duke, and Daphne's like, I don't have the duke anymore. Shit. So she goes home and she's scheduled to wear. Because I guess you schedule your dresses. She's scheduled to wear another one. And she's like, I have to look banging at this ball so I can win the Duke. And, like, Cressida doesn't get to win. Like, I don't have the option of the Duke anymore. And so I love how to her lady's mate, she's like, do that thing with my hair that makes it look really good. And, like, so she walks in. People are at the ball. And this is where um, Simon 
confirms to Lady Danbury, he's like, I'm leaving town. And she looks at him like, you're a moron. Mm-hmm. And then Daphne walks in and she takes a page from the book that like the two of them have been joke writing together and drops her fan on the ground so that the prince has to pick it back up. I love that scene so much. It's just like a giant F you to Simon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you guys have, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but did you have ideas as to who you thought Lady Whistledown was at this point? So I already knew oh. from reading all the books. And Jess, did you so, already know also? No, I, but I love spoilers. So I, I mean, <laughs> so like, you already I, knew. Okay. yeah, <laughs> I knew, but um, yeah, I love being spoiled for a show or anything. I was very curious at what point a person who didn't know would start to get vibes because I did make notes on several, like I thought at the end of episode one, there was very strong foreshadowing of who it was, but obvious it's obviously made more apparent if you already know, right? Like right. I feel like in some ways that was a nod to the reader to be like, haha, waggle your eyebrows. <laughs> like you get to know that this is what's happening. And um, I did have a couple of very frantic conversations with friends who were watching and I'm like did you read so do you already know or you don't know and they're like no I don't know and I'm like but did you figure out the thing and they're like what what yeah. thing it, it was like the conversation between Simon and Daphne where he's like you know the thing you do at night and she's like sleep and I'm like no the, the thing <laughs> because I wanted to know at what point someone who didn't know would figure out who it was because it felt like the show wasn't trying to keep it a secret the way the books very distinctly keep it a secret until a certain book. Yeah. And so um, it turned out from the people that I berated with questions um, that mostly they thought by about episode four or five, they had a very strong guess as to who it was. And then that guess was confirmed at the end of the season was most of what I was told from other people. So I was actually googling the character that it was because I wanted to make sure her storyline got redeemed um, because I was feeling very anxious about it and that's when I found because then it was like mm, one of the headlines of anything else about episode three or Lady Whistledown I think we pretty much covered it okay so moving on to episode four my first note is Benedict at the brothel slash bordello why was sex occurring literally everywhere like why are they on the stairs like is that i thought brothels or bordellos anytime i've seen them depicted before there were like rooms people went into this was just like a halfway orgy i think it was a it was a party <laughs> it, was it was a, a party. party it wasn't just a brothel it was yeah a party. i don't think it was even a bordello yeah, yeah. it was just Lord Granville's yeah, house. Yeah, I think it was like oh. the the artists were getting together, and like sometimes it means mm-hmm. they paint a picture of a naked lady, and then other times it's this. Okay, that makes <laughs> way more sense because I was like, "Is this a paid establishment? What is happening here? This is not professional at all." If it's just a play party, that makes way more sense. Um, yeah. We haven't talked a ton about him. I read an article that was like, "Oh, before it came out, there's going to be." a queer character in the Bridgerton family, which would be a a substantial deviation from the books. Um, And so I was kind of guessing who it would be. And I did think it would be Benedict when um, he started expressing interest in art and started taking that class. Um, But then, I mean, maybe he's bisexual. But anyway. They don't actually show him being bisexual in No, no, that's just me He does participate, but only with women. 
Right, which I was curious because I was wondering if they were going in that direction, um, especially when he kind of walked in on um, the host of the party, I forget his name, um, with like his lover. And I was like, oh, okay, well, he's obviously not going to freak out about this, but I wonder if this is foreshadowing that like he's also, you know, like if he's bisexual or not. And then he rejoins the party, but with females. Yeah. I've always seen Benedict as, like, the most boring of the Bridgertons. He's just, like, the basic white guy character that wishes he could be more creative and then eventually, like, finds art and is kind of creative. And if if his is the story they decide to rewrite in order to bring a welcome diversity, then, like, I'm all for it. And I do wonder how much people who are, like, super purists to the books are going to be pissed about it if that happens. But I think the other obvious potential choice is Eloise. Yeah. that. Yeah. See, I was like, is it going to be Benedict or is it going to be Eloise? Or it could be the F, the sibling with that starts with an F who hasn't even been there. Francesca. Gregory's not on screen oh, yeah. a lot either. Love Hyacinth, yeah. though. Yeah. I was actually wondering, episode one, if Eloise and Penelope were going to be lesbians and were, like, in a relationship that was hidden from everyone. And that does not come to be. But, like, episode one, I I was getting some lesbian vibes. And I'm here for it. If we want to deviate and have them hook up, like, I love their chemistry as characters, let's do it. They do. They have great chemistry. You can be fierce lady friends and, like, not have sex, but because this is a romance novel, I was just, like, primed scouting for, like, sexual relationships, so. Which I think my take on that is different from having read Penelope's book multiple times and knowing exactly how into Colin she is. And so, like, if that is the the way this character currently exists which it doesn't need to be for the show but as a person that's read that like watching those interactions i was like oh they're like sisters so like i was not getting like a sizzly sexual chemistry type vibe from them because i and i don't i don't know if that's i'm sure that that's impacted by my having read the books but i think that it would make more sense to me if if Eloise is into Penelope and then Penelope is into Colin, yeah. then like any other way to have that happen. Um, but I am curious now that they've kind of established their willingness to break from the source material at what points they will versus they won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that boxing match situation with mm-hmm. Simon's forearms when he rolls up his sleeves and they just focus a lot on his arms during that scene which I thought was a strong director's choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. It's not just rolled up to like his elbows. It's like, let's keep going in case you wanted to gl- glance at that bicep. And during this scene, my husband was like trying to make a point about something and he couldn't think of what Simon's name was. And he's like, you know, the Duke of Forearm. And I was like, yes. I was like, that is now his name to me forever. <laughs> <laughs> so Daphne's there making the Duke jealous and then he goes back to his house and is like oh it reminded of her, their love and their 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 hand holding because he sees the painting yeah which his his man his butler his valet I'm not sure what role the person is supposed to be but it might even be like a secretary where it's like he handles his business 
And he's like, why would that painting be here? And the man's like, because you literally asked me to bring it here. And then I did. And I worked really hard for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just loved like the attitude back to him to be like, mm, do you not remember? I did an awesome job and now it's here. <laughs> so something happened in this episode that was kind of confusing to me because before the show came out, there was a lot of conversation about how there was colorblind casting. And how it was a very diverse cast and that was super important, which like we don't talk about it until this episode where Lady um, Danbury is like, why are you leaving? Like you clearly love her, marry for love, like stay. And um, Simon's like, we don't have that luxury. The only reason we're in this position is because Queen Charlotte married the king And if he falls out of love with her, we lose our status in society, which immediately inserts race into this story in a way Mm -hmm. that I wasn't expecting. And honestly, I don't even know really what to do with, because then it creates this whole like power dynamic where it wasn't previously defined in the first three episodes and then a different power dynamic going forward. What did you guys think of that? I agree that it was confusing because that power dynamic is never addressed again moving forward. And so it was such a, I mean, it was that one scene is the only time that they talked about it. And that made it confusing because, you know, if it's going to be something where it's not just like, if you want this element of the story to be more than we had colorblind casting, then I feel like, make it part of the narrative where with this it was almost a throwaway yeah I I was like and it was such a throwaway I was like why did you put it in like if you've taken all this time to have media and like marketing that you know this is colorblind casting and like this is historical fantasy so it's not true to history why even take the time to elaborate on that if it's not really going to come up other than this one scene right which I, I read an article um, that expressed frustration about that, where it's like, you know, you set it up to be something that was very inclusive. And it is in that it has main characters of color, but you ignore the struggle, like you ignore the implications. And this is the only reference to it. And it's a throwaway. And that's not fair. And that's not OK. You know, and like that frustration was expressed, which I don't really feel like I can speak to that, obviously, but I do understand what it was saying. And I think later in later episodes, we get to various scenes where the power dynamic becomes very important Mm -hmm. between different characters and addressing the racial divide in that way acknowledges that it existed, which means that you now need to treat it like it exists, right? And they don't. Yep. And so it's it's like, why did you put it in just to then ignore it later? Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting scene. And obviously, we'll talk more about the other episode. Like the... We also have Eloise trying to figure out who Lady Whistledown is. And I kind of love her, like, one frantic energy. And the, the actress has such a physical portrayal of that character where the way she like tilts her head when she talks and the way that her body moves, like it all kind of comes together into such like a quirky and likable character. And in there's a scene in particular in this episode where she's trying to figure out who Lady Whistledown could be and she's landed on the idea that it's a servant. 
and she goes into the housekeeper's room to search her stuff to figure out if she has like writing materials and the housekeeper finds her and is like what are you doing in my room and she's like um i'm i'm a lady of this house i am your boss i am in your room and the housekeeper's like, yeah, I changed your diapers. What the fuck are you doing in my room? And I just love the housekeeper's, like, indignation and how she immediately, like, wilts and is like, I thought maybe you were a lady whistled down and I just wanted to check. And the housekeeper's reaction is such, like, a guttural laugh at the idea that she would have the time to be Lady Whistledown while doing all of her other chores. She's like, you think a servant could be Lady Whistledown? You think I just have spare time out the ass to do anything I want? You think I'd work for you if I had the money of Lady Whistledown? Get out of my room. <laughs> and she's like, yep, so sorry. So Obviously so wrong. I'm going to go. Let's act like this never happened. And I just love everything about that scene so much. Yeah. Yeah. I love that this is what she's spending time on. Yeah. Which she's kind of like the queen found out she's investigating Lady Whistledown. And the queen was like, hey, let me know when you figure out who it is. And so now she sees it as like a mission from the queen to figure out who Lady Whistledown is. And for for those of us who know who Lady Whistledown is, the person she... The various people that she talks to as she's trying to figure out and you're like oh you're talking to okay you're talking to a person and i know there's secrets in this conversation right like it kind of like clues you in in a way that makes it fun right which Mm -hmm. i feel like i mean eloise definitely starts with the people that you would like most suspect right like maybe it's a servant and she hears all the gossip or maybe and that was funny to me because it's like, well, it can't be the person you most suspect. It has to be the person that you most medium suspect. <laughs> and so I was like waiting for her to get to that point where it's like, no, this one's too obvious. Like it can't be her. There's no way. Like go a different direction. I need another clue to see if you know I can figure this out before you do. So th- this is the episode where they go to the castle and Prince Frederick gives Daphne the necklace. It's a beautiful necklace. It's very pretty. And as soon as she puts it on, I think that looks very uncomfortable to wear. Because it's very elaborate, but it's like a choker. And spiky. like Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then her mom's like, that's a beautiful necklace, but what about the Duke? That's when she tearfully confesses to her mother that it's all a ruse. And even then, Violet's like, was it? Yeah, I I do love how the mom still saw right through it and said, you know, like, I mean, maybe it was a ruse, and then maybe it was not a ruse after that. Mm-hmm. So the necklace was a befuddlement to me, because they go to this ball, and that's one where um, Anthony is told Daphne that Frederick is going to propose. Like, he's asked for permission. And um, so she's wearing the necklace. She's like, I'm going to make this statement in public. She knows what she has to do, because she thinks the Duke has left town. Um, and she, but then she sees the Duke at the wall and there's other stuff that happens at the ball, but she runs out the door and then rips the necklace from her neck. And like, I feel like that's a family necklace, like, but it's, he never asks for it back. She leaves it on the garden wall and it is exactly. never talked about again. Exactly. And I'm Did like, some servant the- wander past and like run to Italy with it or something, you know, like someone had an excellent night when they stumbled upon that necklace. <laughs> That was a lot the of... The internet is very concerned about what happened. To yeah, like what happened to those diamonds? That was an expensive necklace. 
and that's the most dramatic thing that happens in this episode she leaves the necklace on a guard yes wall. it that is, is it. <laughs> so the end it was great talking to you guys <laughs> Which this is this is one of the justice for Frederick moments that she knows he wants to propose. She wears his necklace to the party, which would be an indicator of like, I'm going to accept your proposal. And then as soon as he's in the midst of trying to propose, she's like, I need air. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she goes out into the garden, which is her favorite place to get into trouble. And she kind of tears the necklace off in a way that I'm like, I think she just broke the clasp. Along with everything else. Like, that would be expensive. And... I think it's supposed to be symbolic, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I was like, you could take it off nicely. Like, did you need to break it? And then throw it? Also, it made me wonder if clasps were the same then. It seems like the mechanics would be too small, which makes me wonder if it would have been more of, like, the kind where it's, like... <laughs> I think it's, um, it's this kind where it, like... <laughs> It goes in and then like it's like a belt buckle kind of. I think that was fairly traditional in those times. I think they also want us to suspend belief a little bit when it comes to like unclasping things because that happened much too easily for how small the clasp on that necklace should have been. But also in later scenes when it comes time to like undress tiny, tiny buttons on another person, they do it instantly and without any struggle. And mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way. Like, someone needs to, like, shift around. There has to be kind of an awkward pause. Someone has to, like, you know, like, there's there's no way that all of these tiny buttons could be immediately undone with no struggle. That's fair. 100% true. It's a, it, Had a whole wedding dress incident about that. Amy <laughs> <laughs> did tell me that wedding night clothes were made to be taken off quickly. In then, not mine now. It was a pain in the ass. But yeah, yeah. Did yours have buttons all the way down the back? Yeah, they weren't real buttons, but like mom used a crochet hook to like hook the fabric across on each of the buttons, and the buttons just went over the zipper. And like no one thought to tell me that like once I was home alone with Matt and we were both drunk, I was gonna have to figure out how to take that off. <laughs> so I just like handed very drunk him a crochet hook and was like, "Go to town." And he was like, "What?" <laughs> so she storms out because she's like this necklace i can't breathe runs out and uh simon follows her and is like daphne i must talk to you and she's like you know what this patio is too well lit and i've had a lot of good experiences in hedges and like in dark gardens so let's take it deeper into the woods Ooh." fun thing you could do is play a drinking game every time she says the duke and i because that's the title of the book that this is based on and i feel like they have her character say that more than is strictly necessary including many times in the following like scene yeah yeah that's fair and because like anthony's like he has to pay for this and she's like the duke and i made these choices together and you're like you can just say we (laughs) 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 no one's making you say the duke and i I did really like how she, so they, he, you know, finds her in the garden and says that he wanted to say goodbye. Um, And she says, your goodbye means nothing to me. We're not friends. You've made that very clear. You know, I don't understand why you're here, why you want to talk to me. And he just doesn't respond the way that men do when they're not sure what to say or they're about to be vulnerable but aren't ready to get there yet. 
And she's like, are you going to say anything? And he just does it. And she said, fine. And just turned and like ran away from him. See, and I feel like that has to do with the stammer because it aligns with the book. And in the book, he does not talk when he has big feelings because he knows he's going to stutter. But like as a viewer of the TV show, we don't know that. Yep. Yeah, they have not established that. That makes so much sense. That makes that whole scene way better. That makes so, yeah, Yeah. that makes the whole scene come together. Without knowing it, she's yelling at someone with a stammer to speak to her, yeah. which is like a horrible thing. Like if you would think if she knew that that was something that he struggled with, that she would not have phrased her question that way. But she doesn't because they haven't talked about it. <laughs> just talk about know, it I'm for not five saying seconds. That she should have I know. I'm this just is just saying, another like... point that I yelled at my TV screen that they, if they would just talk about it for five seconds, it would all come together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always like, adults use their words. And then I remember that this woman is 16. And when I was 16, I did not use my words. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, So this is when we have the duel, which Amy has acquiesced and decided that we can bring back dueling as long as it's with paintball guns. Yeah. And although this is this like archaic fight for a woman's honor, it also can be used to like settle debts or anything like that. And it it is somewhat amusing to me. I did not realize that demand satisfaction was the code for we need to have a duel because they say that in Hamilton. And I just thought that was a, a little turn of phrase from Hamilton because he is an artist and he writes all these beautiful songs. And then, yeah, Anthony demands satisfaction and everyone immediately knew that it was a duel. And I learned something because I didn't know. That's, I learned what Modiste was from this show. So yeah. Like, yeah. I reverse learned what Weehawken is from Hamilton. Because I had a very similar thing where they were like, we hawken, Dawn. And I thought that we hawken was like, we, us, hawken, verb, that somehow meant dueling. And then like multiple listens into Hamilton realized it's the name of a place and it's the place where they duel. It's in New Jersey. And I thought it was like a, yeah, I thought it was a slang term for for like hawken was like dueling or whatever. And I felt so dumb when I figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is legal in New Jersey. I was today's Mm -hmm. years old when I learned that, so. (laughs) (laughs) But so, so they have this moment. So she runs off into the garden and he's like, I'm going to follow you. And then just like that, obviously, yes, making out happens. And it's. Anthony must have at some point been like, I don't see Daphne. She gets into trouble in gardens. I must run through the garden until I find her. Because <laughs> this, like, it's implied that this garden is, like, kind of maze-like. That there's, like, tall hedges all around and they were in a place that was kind of secluded. Mm-hmm. And so Anthony comes upon them and pulls them apart and demands the duel. And it's, you have to marry her or we have to duel. And he says, I can't marry. I can't marry you. I can't marry her. And (laughs) my husband, the loudest I've ever heard him react to a television show went, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it brought me so much joy. And I just like, I love the drama of the moment. I love like the unexpectedness. If you didn't know what was about to happen, that like that he would standing right in front of her, looking right at her, be like, "I'd rather have your your brother shoot me than marry you." 
is like such a vibe. Yeah, this gives her. Ooh, we got a vibe in this episode. <laughs> this gives her yes. a lot of. Um, it, it like builds a defense for her to not understand that he's in love with her, <laughs> because a lot of this show, I'm like, I don't understand how you don't know where each other are at right now. But yeah, the fact that he chases her into a garden to make out with her and then immediately says that he would prefer to die rather than marry her is a very confusing place to be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So she shows up at the duel. um, Very dramatically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought she was shot for a second. I thought they were going to have her be shot. Because that does happen pretty regularly. When a duel happens, someone who wasn't supposed to be shot gets shot. And then, like, ends up getting better because it's a romance. But, like, you have that very dramatic, you better confess how you feel because they're bleeding to death. Mm. Yeah. So this is the classic scene from the book where he's like, I cannot give you children. And she mulls it over briefly in a field and is like, yeah, we're going to get married. So they they end up not dueling. So she saves his life. Which I think most of this duel is about Anthony and Simon and their issues and is not at all about Daphne. Because as soon as Anthony decides to do this duel, he's like, this is my way out. No matter how it ends, duels are illegal. Either I get shot and I die and I'm not the Viscount anymore. Or I shoot Simon and he dies and I have to flee the country. I can take Sienna with me if I flee the country. We can be happy together elsewhere. Benedict can be the Viscount. Everyone lives happily ever after. This might solve all my problems. And so, like, he goes to Sienna and is like, this is what's about to happen. Depending on how it goes down, like, I might come for you. And if I came for you, would you run away with me? And, the like, I feel for her character so much in this scene that, like, she obviously loves him, even though he's a dick. Mm -hmm. And she lets him convince her that maybe this will come to fruition that like he would come for her they would run away together and they would get to be happy and she lets him into her bed and then as soon as she wakes up the next morning she knows that he's not coming back that there's like there's no way that this will end in that kind of fairy tale-esque way for her or for him Mm -hmm. which is true like it doesn't end that way he stays the viscount they can't be together end of that Mm -hmm. and so and then simon is like, well, I took this vow to never marry. I took this vow to never have kids. And so, like, what else am I doing? I might as well let myself get shot. Not a good attitude to have about life. But both in their own ways, not about Daphne, not about honor, not about love. It's like, what's the simplest way to solve my own problem by blowing up my whole world in such a big way that my world no longer exists? Yeah. It's a very, it's a passive suicide attempt. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. In this episode, we also learned that the Featheringtons are broke. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Turns out Lord Featherington likes his wagers, which up till now, we've only seen him making bets with people and then losing those bets <laughs> and like playing cards with people and then losing at cards. Um, and so the Featheringtons no longer have dowries. And I did love the scene where Lady Featherington confronts him. And she's like, 
you ruined everything. Tell me how you're going to fix it. And you think, like, he's been kind of haughty and standoffish with her this whole time. So you think he's probably about to be like, get out of my office. Obviously, I'll fix it myself. And he just breaks down and is like, I ruined it. I ruined our fortune. <laughs> and he just, like, starts to cry. And she's like, oh, shit. Oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. Yeah. Like, yeah, her response. She's like, I didn't. Was like, ah, she's like, it, I didn't want to have emotion. <laughs> I did love that. Yeah, I loved that. And then she's thrust into this position of like, shit, I have to figure this out. I need, there's even more urgency around getting my children married. And how am I going to get my children married? Mm -hmm. We, I mean, we basically leave this episode with the idea that Daphne and Simon are now going to be married. She's jazzed about it. He's not. And I... Well, we think he's not. Yeah, I mean... I think in reality he's not and then he comes around to the fact that like his attitude is ridiculous yeah but i think in this moment he thinks she's forcing me to do the one thing i promised i would never do and i think he knows that he's now forcing himself into a life where he's married to her but wants to find a way to still never have children with her and like considering the logistics of that at the time seems difficult is that perspective partially informed by the book that he's not jazzed to be marrying her. Yeah. Okay. Cause I didn't hugely get that. <laughs> so he's like, I guess we could say we do know that both of them are giving up on like their dreams for the future because his was mm-hmm. to die in a duel and hers was <laughs> to like have a large family with children. So mm-hmm. we do know that from the show. Right. I don't know. I saw it as obviously this isn't the circumstance that either of them wanted to be in or that either of them wanted to lead to them being together. But both of them did want to be together. So, okay. (laughs) Right. So it's one of those things where, uh, you know, as someone who has not read the books, it definitely, I could see that they were upset about the way that things were shaking out. But at the end of the day, they were both getting what they wanted, which was to be together. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think he's still telling himself that that's not what he wanted. Interesting. And so if he's lying to himself, he's lying to himself. But I don't think he's telling himself that that's what he wanted. And I think either, each one thinks the other one doesn't truly want yeah. to. Ryan. Like, Simon thinks Daphne was saving his life. Daphne thinks Simon was, basically took pity on her, which is like the worst way to hook yeah, up. Yeah, that's so. rough. <laughs> no one likes a pity hookup. It's kind of creepy, yeah. Which, that makes sense. Like, I do see how that plays into the story and where that's coming from. And it's realistic and I get it, but I feel like that just ignores everything that they had built for these previous four episodes. And why you remember that stuff, that stuff was important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anything else on episode four? I don't think so. I think we mostly covered it. Okay. I do. Well, next episode we'll be talking about, I don't know. We'll probably talk about five and six and then seven and eight. We'll talk about it. We'll figure it out. But thank you. We'll probably have other books mixed in there too. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for listening. And um, our social media is active. And I just remembered what our handles are. So that's cool. It's OHG podcast um, for Twitter and Instagram. And you can email us at obstinate headstrong podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. 
Yeah. And Julie isn't on social media. If you want to talk to her, you just have to message me and then I'll tell her and it'll be like a whole yeah. thing because she refuses to live in the 21st century. I That's just don't so have a Twitter. Smart. It's it's really not that big of a deal. I just don't have a Twitter. <laughs> it's just like the one thing I wanted to But Amy get. does send me screenshots from Twitter regularly enough that it's like I have a Twitter. So feel free to contact me on there. I, I, <laughs> I kind of get that, though. I really Twitter stresses me out. Why? I'm Julia's Twitter concierge. There's so many things going on. I feel like the key to it with, and like, I feel like this is probably reasonably true with any social media is you have to just filter it to the shit you care about. And I don't think I know enough about how to use Twitter to filter it for my shit that I care about. But anyway, we didn't do the thing. All right. Stay obstinate. Stay headstrong. Nailed it.